All right, and I invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Thank you for preaching through song this morning. Man, I think any preacher in the room would be ready to preach after that singing. If you're a preacher in the room and you want to preach right now, raise your hand. Okay, you're on. No, just kidding. Man, thank you so much for that. What a blessing. Just overwhelmed by uh, the fact that God reigns on high in heaven and the Lamb is before the throne, standing as if he'd been slain. And so uh, delighted by the songs and so thankful uh, for your part in uh, preaching the gospel this morning. We consider Romans chapter 9. It's been a joy and privilege to work through, begin working through Romans 9 through 11 with you. Uh, One of uh, the most uh, challenging and controversial sections in all the Bible. I was uh, reading someone's presentation of this chapter this morning, and uh, he said that these chapters contain 37 citations of the Old Testament and 13 paragraphs. That's a really good description. I would add, you know, what a de- what dense and important information you find in these paragraphs. We've already considered two of them, Romans 9, 1 through 5, and 6 through 13. And today we're going to consider the third paragraph, Romans 9, 14 through 18. That's our goal in the 25 or 30 minutes before we partake in the Lord's table. After the initial paragraph where Paul defends his own love for the Jewish people, he gets right to it in the second paragraph, and he defends the character of God. As a matter of fact, most of Romans 9, as I see it, is a defense of God's character. He is faithful. He is righteous. He is free. And he is sovereign. You'll find these things in Romans 9. The current failures and the rejection of the Israelite people uh, is not God's fault. It's theirs. And God's intention was never to save every ancient Jewish person anyway. To gain a fuller understanding of that, one of the things we learned last week was that uh, if you're going to fully understand God's purposes, or at least begin to understand God's purposes in plan, you also need to come to grips with a subject that he introduces in the second Section that subject is election. Election. God's choice of only some of Abraham's children or Isaac's children and Jacob's children. That subject of election, however, always brings questions, doesn't it? And uh, Paul will predict some of these questions. He'll bring them to our attention. And, and some of those questions even have to do with the nature of God himself. In this case, what we'll be looking at today has to do with God's righteousness. I think it's been good for us to dig into Romans 9, and it's been helpful, but I, I would say for some of us it's also been unsettling, hasn't it? Some of the easy, comfortable surface ways we normally use, or uh, props that we normally use to describe God and what he's doing, have been exposed in Romans 9. Uh, our 
time in ABS last week was a fruitful and fun discussion, but it was also, you know, interesting to hear different people and say, you know, this is how I used to always think about it, but I, I don't know. This can be unsettling. At times we may feel that we have nothing left, but let me start by just reminding you that underneath all of this, you can rest assured in one thing. God is faithful. He's sovereign. He's righteous. He's good. And He's reigning on the throne in heaven today. And so if you feel unsettled, just keep reminding yourself of that. You've got a good and righteous God. He's sitting enthroned in heaven today. Today we'll begin to see Paul's zealous defense of God. More specifically, we'll see his defense of God's righteousness. God is right even when he chooses on the basis of no human qualities or distinctions. Doesn't factor into his considerations. He chooses in accordance with his own will, and he's yet completely right. I would encourage you to pay close attention to this today, and uh, it's my prayer that uh, God will use his word to give you a proper basis and support to rest on. Uh, it's my prayer that through exegesis, through bringing out what's in the Bible, your view of God will be strengthened, more so than an exegesis of culture, what the culture says, and bring out what the culture says, or an exegesis of theology or something else you've learned. Just let the Scripture kind of factor in. And then, as uh, Pastor Thomas says, submit to that, whatever it is. Having said that, uh, as we begin in verse 14, Paul begins this section by considering someone charging God with injustice. I want you to look at the beginning of the passage. Look at verse just verse 14 at the beginning. What shall we say then... Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Now, this kind of language shouldn't be surprising to us. We've we've seen what shall we say then. This is the way Paul argues when he's trying to bring out uh, uh, further um, implications of his views and what Scripture teaches. He he wants to kind of bring to the surface an objection that someone might, might raise. They would ask, is God unjust? Is he unrighteous? Is he unfair? And so here Paul considers someone who feels that it's unjust of God to deal with people on the basis of his own choice instead of their own works. Is that unrighteous, unjust? Paul's answer is also you find something you find often in Romans, right? God forbid, may it never be. It's an emphatic defense, initial defense. It's like, here's the question. It's like, it's hardly even finished. It's like, no, no. May never be. God is always right. God is always righteous. God's actions are never blameworthy. It's entirely unthinkable for Paul, for someone to claim that God is unfair. Now, to that initial answer, what happens in the rest of the section is Paul offers supports or reasons why he thinks that. Reasons for the, may it never be. Reasons for the, there's no way God is unrighteous. And he gives two of them in the rest of this paragraph. 
These two reasons contain additional revelations about God that help us better understand him. The reasons are succinct and they progress in the exact same way. It's so clear, even in our English Bibles. Let let me just show you this, that there are two reasons after verse 4. First, uh, both of these reasons come in two verse sections. Okay, so the first reason is found in verses 15 and 16. The second, 17 and 18. I hope you have a Bible, by the way. You need to open that up. There should be one around you if you don't have one. Okay, I, I really want you to see a few things right here in your Bible. Okay, so... Two reasons, verse 15 and 16, verse 17 and 18. Second, notice that both reasons start with the word for in most English Bibles. So if you're looking at verse 15, what's the first word of verse 15? For. For. What's the first word of verse 17? For. For, yeah. So he's giving us reasons or grounds for, may it never be, God's not unrighteous. To these statements, Paul then follows with an Old Testament citation. So if you have an English Bible that marks quotations from the Old Testament, what you will have in your Bible is you will have quotation marks around most of verse 15 and most of verse 17. Paul's arguing in the exact same way. He's got two reasons, and he these reasons come from the Old Testament, He quotes two passages from Exodus. He does so in verse 15 and then again in verse 17. But that's not all. You can see his parallel reasoning also in the fact that Paul draws a deduction after the citations in both sections. So if you're reading from the ESV today, what are the first two words of verse 16? Say it out loud. So then. If you're reading from the ESV, what are the first two words of verse 18? So then. And that might be true in other English Bibles as well. I didn't have a chance to look at all of them. So, two reasons come from the Bible, and Paul draws two deductions from them. So then, so then. In the section. And again, these two reasons relate back to Paul's emphatic rejection of the idea that God is unjust. So let's start with the first one. Verses 15 and 16. Look in your Bible at verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. The argument itself, this first one, comes from a text in Exodus where Moses recalls God's amazing self-revelation to him. Matter of fact, I want you to turn back in your Bible to this text. It's Exodus chapter 33. So flip back there in your Bible. Now, I have marked it in my Bible this time, so I'm going to beat you there. Exodus 33. Exodus 33, and we're going to be reading a section of Verses And in the middle of the section, we'll find the quote that Paul has up here in verse 15 of Romans 9. What you find in these chapters, uh, chapters 33 and 34, is what one commentator called the greatest self-revelation of God found anywhere in the Bible before Jesus. Like that, this is a significant passage. The greatest 
self-revelation of God found anywhere in your Bible before Jesus. So let's pay attention. Acts 33, and I want to read verses 17 through 23. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor or grace in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please, show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on a rock And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but not my face, but my face shall not be seen. Now stay here in your Bible, because I'm going to show you something else in a second. This passage occurs in a three-section chapter, Exodus 32 through 34, where Israel fails in their covenant relationship with the Lord, in chapter 32, but by the end, God will renew that covenant. It starts in Exodus 32 when they fail with the golden calf. Very important, significant event in the Old Testament. They fail with the golden calf. They offer idolatrous worship to a golden calf, and they're immoral. It's so bad in their idolatry that God tells Moses to step to the side so he can wipe them out and start over, find a new people. Moses responds, or if you know these chapters, well, he responds with intercession, not only in chapters 32, although that one is a very famous intercession of Moses, but also in 33 and 34, all throughout Moses' interceding on behalf of the people. Now, initially, God does decide to forgive them, in a sense, and to honor his promise to the Israelites regarding a land. He says they're going to go into the land, but at the beginning of chapter 33, God says that when they go in, he'll send an angel in front of them, not himself, because they're so stiff-necked and stubborn. If he went in himself, they would be consumed. Well, that's a disastrous report, actually says that in the the Bible in chapter 3. It's a disastrous report that the Israelites hear. God's not going to go with us. And so they send Moses back to him again to, like, reason you know, angels good, but we want you to come with us. We want your presence. And so Moses' request begin with asking God, show me your ways. Chapter 33, verse 13, show me your ways, God. And then here he says, show me your glory, verse 18. And ultimately, God decides out of sheer mercy and grace to grant the request of Moses God decides to go with his people Israel himself and to give them rest in the land. That's chapter 33 and verse 14. God's going to go with them into the land and give them the rest that he he had promised. He also is going to grant Moses' request and reveal to him his glory. And he described it here, I'm going to put you in a cleft of the rock, I'm going to go by, you can't see my face, you're just going to see the hinder parts of my glory, and that's going to have to be enough for you. Well, that actually happens 
in chapter 34, and this is why I had you stay there. The greatest self-revelation of God found anywhere in your Bible before Jesus, I think, is Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And it's significant that the Old Testament authors, they just keep quoting the same, these same two verses. Look at Exodus 34, 6, and 7. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Here, when God decides to reveal himself to Moses. He says that he is merciful and gracious, yet also unwilling to clear the guilty and visiting their iniquities upon them and their descendants. Now, Paul in Romans 9, you can go back to Romans 9. In Romans 9, Paul is interested in this self-revelation of God. He actually appeals to a particular part of it that's a preliminary declaration by the Lord that focuses on God's mercy and grace to whomever he wants. That's part of what it means to be the sovereign one, to be God. You can make choices to demonstrate mercy or grace on whichever people you so desire. This passage clearly makes the point that as creator, God has the freedom to dispense mercy and compassion on anyone he so desires, even if it's the disobedient and rebellious people of Israel. If God decides to accompany them into the land, that's his prerogative and his choice alone. And entirely, entirely. Now, from that quote, Paul draws a deduction, verse 16 in your Bible. So you're back in Romans 9. The inference, I think, is Paul drawing out something that applies as a principle to all people and situations. And here's the lesson that the Old Testament teaches Paul and us. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Okay, now, the way this is translated, and the original actually also, require you to supply a subject. The ESV is translated with the word it, but you should be asking yourself, what does the word it stand for? It might refer to, and there are all kinds of possibilities, God's mercy, his promise, his election, his salvation. But I agree with many who say it refers to God's bestowal or God's giving of mercy. So God's actual dispensing of mercy, if you take it this way, does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God himself. 
Okay, now we need to look at these two words, will and exertion, just quickly. The, uh, they speak of human willing and human running. That would be a literal translation. It speaks of everything a human can do. Uh, the willing includes our internal desires, purposes, and readiness. The running, our actual execution of the internal desires that we have. I think the word running is used instead of walking to speak of the whole range of human actions, everything you could imagine, including the most devout actions of the most devout person you could think of. So the point here is that God does not give mercy on the basis of any action from fallen men and women. God does not decide to give mercy and compassion on in response to anything human. Instead, God gives mercy only on the basis of one person, himself. God only gives mercy according to his own sovereign purposes. And so God's promises can function in accordance with election because, as the Old Testament passage says, God can show mercy to whoever he wants. The fact of the matter is, he's God. So, let's go to the second one. That second one was positive. We all like to talk about the fact that God can show mercy to whomever he wants. The the second one is the flip side of this. God not only has the right to dispense mercy to whomever he desires, he also can harden anyone uh, he desires as well. And that's what we find in verses 17 and 18. That's, that's what I think the distinction between these two little sections are, Okay. Over verses 15 and 16, I write the word mercy. Um, and over verses 17 and 18, I'd write the word harden. All right, see that? And so the point will be God can do either. He's God. Uh, now, I want to read this with you. Look at verses 17 and 18 in your Bible. It says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh... For this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Well, we'll work through this again, right? It starts with scriptural support. The reason comes from the Old Testament. And this time, it comes from another place in Exodus, Exodus 9. So I invite you to turn back there. Okay, we're doing this one more time. Exodus 9, and I want to read a few verses with you back there. When Paul wants to illustrate the fact that God can harden an individual if he so desires, he thinks of an Old Testament example found in Exodus, and the example he will use is that that of Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. So I want to read uh, the passage from which this quotation comes. It's, again, right near the middle of uh, the Lord addressing Moses, and so we won't read all of it, but look at verse 13. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. 
For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. And we'll just have to stop reading there for sake of time. Now, the verses we just read occur in a larger section again, where God has Moses go repeatedly back to Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, demanding that God let his people go. This section goes from Exodus 7 through 12. How many times does Moses go back to Pharaoh? Do you know? Another way of asking that is, how many plagues are there? Ten. Ten times this is repeated. Ten times God demands that the people of Israel be allowed to let go. Ten times Pharaoh says no. Now, the text that Paul cites specifically here deals with a statement that God made to Pharaoh through Moses when he was forecasting the seventh plague, the plague of hail. Here, God specifically informs Pharaoh that it was he who raised up Pharaoh. Okay, so he reveals to the Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, that God is the one who made him the ruler. And this reminds us of other texts of Scripture. I won't go to all those that remind us that God installs kings and rulers however he desires. Even that's in God's hand. Now the reason or purpose this stubborn Pharaoh was raised up by God is given in our passage, and this was what Paul quotes. It's so that God's power might be shown in Pharaoh and God's name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. God had made this explicit even earlier, before these plagues had come. In, in, in Exodus 7, verses 3 through 5, if you're still there, you can look. If not, I'll read it to you. But in the middle of verse 3, Exodus 7, 3, it says, uh, Though I multiply my signs and my wonders in the hands of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts and judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. And so if you're looking at this from God's perspective, it at least goes this level. God installed Pharaoh in the land so that, first purpose, right? So that... Pharaoh would stubbornly refuse to obey God over and over and over again. But here's the second purpose. So that God could over and over again display his power to save his people. See, men and women, what we've done here is we've, we've descended just down two levels down into God's sovereign purpose. Okay, And believe me, it goes far deeper than that. It goes so deep, I'm sure it would blow the mind of the greatest of intellectuals in the room. 
Okay, so we're only going two purposes deep. Okay, and when we get to that second level, what we find out is there is a positive purpose in this. The plagues showed over and over again that God was powerful and sovereign over the whole earth. You see, God's judgments were not only negative, they showed positive purpose to help people know more about His power and to make people know about His name. It just struck me, kind of humorous as we were singing the one song here this morning, let your name be known in all the earth. And I was thinking, boy, do we really... (laughs) There are different ways you can learn about God's power and his, his name could become known. Now God made this clear even in chapter 9 in the first passage we read about Pharaoh when he says, by now, Pharaoh, I could have struck you down and cut you off from the earth. Instead, God keeps Pharaoh in power so that plague after plague after plague after plague keep repeating till 10 He's able to show the whole world his power. So God often has positive purposes even when evil men and women seem to be in control. See, sometimes we fail to know that God has positive purposes even in our most challenging situations. All, all we can see is the, you know, all of the stuff Pharaoh's doing to us all of his wickedness and how he seems to be prospering. In our lives, we just see the success of evil or wicked people. We might see suffering and sin and judgment and death, but God is helping people see things about who he is through these events. In their time and in our time. Part of that, no doubt, has to do with God's long-suffering and kindness so that people will turn to him. All of it, is so that people would see his power and proclaim the glory of his name. Now go back to Romans 9. We'll close, close up. There's one last deduction. From this Old Testament text, Exodus 9, Paul draws out one more inference. He sees a principle that stands behind the specific example of Pharaoh. Now, I just want to give a brief warning. This might get me in a little bit of trouble. But that's okay. You're, you, by the way, when I talk about trouble, you're the most gracious congregation. I've had people like tell me, I'm so concerned for you, Pastor. You're okay. You're so kind. I know we have differences of opinion from time to time. That's fine. Okay. You're wrong. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, uh, just, just a thought here, a quick warning against those who might say that Romans 9, 10, 11 is only about nations and corporate groups, not individuals. It's a, Common objection that someone might give the chapter. Common objection maybe to some of the things even that I'm saying. Uh, I would just say, just simply, I know I'm not the, the brightest of minds, but just individuals are the ones spoken of here all throughout. It's Jacob. It's Esau. It's the Pharaoh. It's individuals. And it seems to me here in verses 16 and 18 that Paul draws universal principles from the individuals that he thinks apply to the way God works. It's like in verse 18, so then, so then here's a lesson, right? God has mercy on whomever, singular. Whatever individual he, he wills. 
and he hardens whomever. Whichever person, he hardens. Okay, off the soapbox, now back into the text. Since God acted this way with Pharaoh in the Exodus, Paul wants us to know that he is free not only to show mercy to whomever he desires, whatever individual, but he's free to harden whomever he wills as well. Look at verse 18, just so you get it. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. Okay, and this is where we begin to swim out into some deep, kind of choppy waters where controversy exists regarding God's divine purposes. I think one of the the main questions that people have, from my experience in this passage, is relates to God and his hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Okay, and their question normally, one of the big ones, is who hardened whose heart first? Have you ever heard this question? Never thought about it? Sorry to even introduce it to you. Okay. But you'll probably hear it at some point. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart first? Or did God's hardening respond to Pharaoh's prior hardening? Some say it's obvious that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And others say it's obvious that Pharaoh first hardened his heart and then God hardened his heart. I can take you to some otherwise responsible commentaries who boldly claim their view and berate anyone who holds a different view. And so I do want to pursue this with you just for a second. I, I give you four things to think about here very briefly. I'll mention them first. This whole debate seems rather ironic to me. It's ironic to me that everyone is so concerned with poor little helpless Pharaoh. How quick people are to forget the horrific abuse that he subjected the people of Israel to. I heard one preacher say that people often talk about Pharaoh like he's such a swell guy. Swell guy. It probably should not surprise me, but it's ironic to me when people rise to declare the human rights of evil people who violated others' human rights. But that's a digression. Second, and more importantly, we should know that the word, the hardened word group, words for harden, occur 16 times back in Exodus. That's why he says hardened here. Paul's assuming you know the Old Testament. In the story of Pharaoh. Because 16 times from Exodus 4 to 14, God uses the word or words for harden to speak of Pharaoh. And I want to say a few things about those words. First, the Old Testament word for harden denotes spiritual insensitivity and inflexibility. Hardening speaks of stubbornness, obstinance, and unresponsiveness. Right? I think we all got that. Now, of those 16 occurrences on six occasions, it's not really clear who's hardening whom. It says something like, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And you're kind of like, okay, don't know exactly who you're talking about here did this. Four times, though, it's clear. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Of the 16, four times, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. On seven other occasions, however, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. And so, you know, to all the commentators who say it's obvious, you got to see it one way or another, you, you really just have to deal with all the biblical evidence. This is a tough question. 
Next, when you look at those 16 terms, you can see two apparently conflicting ideas or truths. Truth one, the first reference to God's hardening of Pharaoh, chapter 9 and verse 12, comes after references to Pharaoh's hardening his own heart, chapter 8, verse 15. Because you got like that truth one. Okay, we're just looking at order and time. According to the scripture, the first reference is Pharaoh hardening his own heart in the actual time. Okay, now you add to that truth number two though, and that is God twice predicts that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart before any of the other occurrences in chapter four and seven. All right, so if you're actually looking at the, you know, the timeline, yeah, Pharaoh hardens his own heart, but before it all begins, God says, I'm going to harden his heart. I'm going to harden his heart. That's likely why scholars disagree and they, you, you can kind of make the case look either way. Right? So it's like, it's obvious. Just look at these pieces of information. I don't consider the other stuff. Just because it's here. It's obvious. And then this guy over here is like, that's stupid. It's obvious. Let's look at these pieces of information. Finally, however, I would say I, I think it's more important to consider a different culp- culprit for the initial hardening of Pharaoh. While some would attribute it to God or to, and I wouldn't use the word culprit of God, by the way. I, I didn't intend that. Some would point to or attribute this to God or others would do Pharaoh. I put the blame on someone else. Adam. Remember Romans 5? There we learn that all men and women, boys and girls, are condemned because of Adam's sin and the condemnation that he brought down on all humanity. So, Pharaoh, whichever Pharaoh this is, is born hard, spiritually insensitive, dead in trespasses and sins. Long before Moses ever came into Pharaoh's life, He was not a good guy. He was already hardened, completely insensitive to sin. God then further hardens someone who was born in depravity, tainted by sin, condemned by it already. And part of the essential nature of what we're learning here about God in these texts is God's ability to choose apart from any obligation to anything or anyone outside of himself. One man said, this is the essence of what it means to be God. And so if we refuse God the right to choose, that in my opinion, we refuse God the right to be God. In other words, as one commentator said it, God's freedom from human willing and running is at the very heart of what it means to be the all-glorious God. You see, choosing shows forth the radiance of God being God. And think about it. Remove the emotions for a moment if you can. I know some of you might be a little bit upset right now. Just remove the emotions for a second. Think about this. These are not choices that, that we would want to leave to just anyone or for that matter, any human agency or government, right? When you're talking about things like electing 
people to be saved? How do you think NATO would do with that decision? The Senate? House of Representatives? Supreme Court? I'm not confident any of them would get it right. No, that sort of decision, you know what that requires? That requires divinity. We are much better to leave these things with the eternal and divine counsel, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who will always be right in their judgments and assessments. I think the ancient prophet got it right the whole way back in the book of Numbers. In one verse, he says it so well. He says this, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Let's let God be God and submit to the one who sits on the throne. Maybe you're struggling with submitting to God today. I remember when I did this initially, I was overwhelmed by my sinfulness and God's righteousness. And I bowed in prayer, weeping next to my bed. And now 40 years later, I would say it's a joy to serve the sovereign God and to submit to Him. Learn to submit to Him. Won't you submit to God and believe on His Son for salvation? And for all of us who do believe, let's submit again to what these verses say. I've tried to just bring out what's there. Let's submit to what's here. If I've misrepresented it, don't submit to what I've said. Submit to what the the Word says. And let's worship Him at the table this morning. You know, God could have hardened us. It would have been completely righteous for Him to respond to our hard and stubborn hearts by hardening us and hardening us and hardening us. But He sent His Son for us and He opened up our hearts so that we would believe. Let's worship at the table.